0: Greetings and welcome to another randomly distributed episode of Med Conversations. With me, your gracious host Rahul Muthalali, and today I've got Scott Abinger with me. So, one of the things—just some general housekeeping here. Uh, well, one of the things that uh, we're going to try and do—we've realised that the randomly distributed episodes can be a bit unpredictable to those of you who are hinging a lot of your life events on the Next Med Conversations episode. Planning weddings, yeah. funerals, we all those we want, things. We, we, we do this for you. So we want to make it a bit easier to predict when the, they're coming. So we're going to try and do one episode a month. And we may even post a schedule pretty soon of what episodes we're going to do and when roughly when they're going to be released. So keep your eyes open for that. Other than that, this podcast today is going to be about nephritis. It's the much-awaited, much-anticipated part two to the glomerular nephritis podcast. Mm. And I think it's a good idea to go back and listen to the first one if you haven't. We'll recap some of the stuff here, but there we covered a lot of the general glomerular nephritis stuff, the anatomy, general workup in the first one. And I think we did a reasonably good job of summarizing it. So worth yeah. checking that out. And that also has nephrotic syndromes at the end. Whereas this one, we'll do a recap of some of that stuff, but in a more brief manner. And then we'll be talking about nephritic syndromes in a case-based way. So. Yeah.
1: So if you still find that kind of categorizing, you know, glomer- all the glomerulonephritides really the difficult nephritides. and kind of finding umbrella things and kind of fitting it in a structure, probably better off listening to the other one first.
0: Yep. Yeah. Uh, so let's get started. Are you, ready? Are you ready, Scott? I don't know. I'd prefer some more housekeeping. <laughs> <have> more housekeeping. <laughs> housekeeping. Okay. So let's start with a recap so just to define again when you say glomerulonephritis scott which what are you actually referring to what does it mean so itis inflammation of the glomeruli the filtration unit at the beginning of the nephron yeah but we'll remember that last time we discussed that even those called glomerulonephritis a lot of them aren't inflammation based Mm. particularly the nephrotic syndrome ones you'll see that the nephritic syndrome ones actually are a lot more inflammation based but keep in mind it doesn't have to be inflammation based And what is glomerulus? Give us a quick rundown again, just definition of glomerulus and what its purpose is, Scott.
1: Yeah, so you've got this really special anatomical little thing that's um, this little tuft of this little capillary bed, and you've got, it's fed by afferent arterioles coming in, and then efferent arterioles going out, E for exit, um, and the pressure is mediated between those two vessels. So you've got extra pressure in that little tuft of capillaries that pushes... um, that filters blood across these membranes into Bowman's space to continue through the kidney.
0: That's right. So, yeah, you've got this little, essentially, filtration unit. And the purpose of all of this is, is to filter the small molecules out and control them, regulate them. So electrolytes, sugars, urea. But you want to keep the big stuff because the big stuff is hard to make and, you know, uh, you need it. So that includes things like hemoglobin and, and red cells, proteins like albumin. You, you want to hang on to those things. And as a result, your glomerulus has three filtration layers to do this. And the diseases usually that we're talking about usually involve one or more of these filtration layers. And the filtration layers are in order from the blood out to the urine are the endothelium, which is just the inside lining of the capillaries. Then the basement membrane, which sits on the outside of the capillaries. And then you have those special podocytes, which means foot cells. You know, these podocytes that have foot processes that attach to The outside of the capillaries and create another filtration barrier. So everything your blood has to be able to get through all of these filtration barriers in order to get to the other side, and that's what keeps the big things in, the small things out. Yeah, and a lot of the small things have been reabsorbed later on, and all that complicated, all those tubules, tubes, nooks, they can be um, regulated depending on what you need. So if we go back to the general workup of anyone who might have a glomerular Scott. What would you be looking for on a history, just briefly? Yeah, so just a really quick run through. So um,
1: some of the features of uh, chlamourine nephritis syndromes could include edema um, or heart failure, um, hematuria, um, uremic symptoms if they've got end-stage or severe kidney injury, which include drowsiness, itchiness, um, rarely things like pericarditis. Um, you also want to have it, see if they have any family history of any kidney diseases, particularly some of the rarer ones. Um, In addition, you want to screen for any um, infections, previous malignancies, or autoimmune conditions, which can also cause um, secondary glomerular nephritis.
0: Yeah, so I think that's the big thing. I mean, the first things that Scott talked about, edema, hematuria, uremic symptoms, so all that symptoms you can get from toxic metabolites that build up in the body because the kidneys aren't getting rid of them, they're general. They're just symptoms of renal failure. But the infections, the malignancy, the autoimmune conditions, all of these glomerular nephritis are really sometimes manifestations of systemic disease or tied to them and so it's really important to know what else the, other, the person has going in the background because if they have an autoimmune condition like lupus you'll see later on that can directly affect their kidneys and so you really got to know about it and that this sort of idea of checking for general renal failure stuff and then checking for other diseases comes into the exam as well so general renal failure stuff what would you be looking at in any general renal failure patients, gut? On examination? Yeah
1: um, so, they can have kind of silvery skin. Um, they can be. That's confused. what you started with. <laughs> Sil- silvery skin. Start with the hands back. Okay, yeah, general expression. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> um, uh, well, you know, vital signs. Yeah. They might
0: have a high blood pressure. That's right. Blood pressure is key in kidney patients. Yeah. Because it's a symptom of and also contributor to renal disease. Yep. Yeah. There might have signs, as
1: we mentioned, of kind of severe kidney injury, So um, uremic encephalopathy, pericardial rub. That's absolutely cool. Yep, just signs start with of... silvery
0: skin and your pericardial rub and then check their blood pressure 20 minutes later. <laughs> you will pass it. Just... <laughs> yeah, and then just
1: run through all your autoantibodies. Um, yep. so, so obviously fluid assessment after yep. blood pressure is the next most important thing. So that mm-hmm. includes looking for signs of heart failure, looking for signs of peripheral
0: edema, and... Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think specific to nephritic syndrome, there's a lot of lung involvement. And the reason is that the small capillaries in the kidneys are very similar to the small vascular beds in the lung. And so often there's, you know, you'll see a few conditions where both of those things are infected. So it's worth keeping an eye on whether there's lung involvement in the exam. But let's get down to the yellow gold. Let's stop messing around. What's going on in the urine, Scott? Yeah, so the, looking at? so the most important
1: things you're looking for are red blood cells, and it's important to differentiate whether they're um, dysmorphic red blood cells that have been squeezed through a damaged glomerulus versus normal red blood cells in the urine coming from lower down in the urinary tract. Um, the other things you can look for are um, urinary MCS, looking for, you know, pyelonephritis as a potential cause, which um, rarely causes severe kind GN, of, but it's good GN, to rule out. Yeah. Good to rule out. Um, and obviously, also the protein being the other really key thing.
0: Yeah, your protein creatinine ratio. So you really need to know, or a twenty-four hour collected protein. So those are the two big things in most GNs. Is like, what do they have glomerular red cells? And as Scott said, they're misshapen red cells that have been forced through that little barrier that they shouldn't be able to get to. Whereas if they're normal sized red cells. They're probably just bleeding from somewhere in their urinary tract or they have an infection. Probably just and a benign prostate cancer. Going yeah, on. just <laughs> <laughs> one of those uninteresting diseases. Yeah. Uh, and then the protein, the amount of protein is so prognostic in all of these patients because that's just an indicator of how much of the stuff that they're meant to be... Remember what we said about the filtration. They're meant to be hanging on to protein and red cells. And if they're not, there's something wrong with their glomerulus. Mm. It's often the target for treatment as well. Mm. And so bloods, as we were talking about with the history of the exam, there's so many conditions that are associated with... If you are any of our new interns who are starting, you might get told to order a GN screen by someone, which is just this really wide varying number of things. But in, in this sort of case, it includes an autoimmune screen. So an anti-nuclear antibody, extractable nuclear antigens, rheumatoid factor, C3, C4, DSDNA. We won't go into all of those here, but it's just sending off a general autoimmune panel. And then some infections, Scott. This is your, this is your bag. Because he has them, not because he's interested. <laughs> <laughs> Many, yeah. Um, HIV,
1: hepatitis B, hepatitis C are all um, potential causes of um, glomerulonephridides.
0: Nifritid- Nifritid- Nephrididides. Nifritid- um, <laughs> 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 it's a PG podcast. Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, what did I say? Uh, so anti-GBM antibodies, and we'll talk about that later, but anti-glomerular basement membrane. I'm guessing you can guess what their antibodies to, And the anchor antibodies, anti Uh, So anchor antibodies, and then your complement C3 and C4. And again, we'll go through those a bit later, uh, but they're sort of, especially in the nephritic syndromes, they're kind of important. And then as we spoke about in the previous podcast, imaging your kidneys just to make sure you haven't got something silly like an obstruction there that you're missing. Mm. So a blockage in the renal tract that's causing renal failure and a biopsy for people who are tricky to diagnose or need a guide to guide their treatment.
1: So next we're going to talk about general treatment principles. So there's a few classes of things and these are pretty much universal to all of the um, types of nephritic syndrome we'll talk about soon. But um, the first are ACE inhibitors or angiotensin angiotensin receptor blockers, usually if they don't tolerate an ACE. Um, And they're useful
0: because they um, decrease the GFR and um, decrease proteinuria. Yeah. So it seems kind of counterintuitive. Like, you know, normally you don't give ACE inhibitors to people with renal disease, but in the long-term, long-term mortality is improved because you decrease the amount of filtration. So you're not putting so much stress on these poor damaged glomerules. Mm. So then there's secondary damage control, Scott. And and what are the things that cause secondary damage to an already hurting kidney? Well, these are
1: just really some of the main causes of kidney damage in the world, but um, kind of diabetic control or blood sugar control over time, um, controlling hypertension, trying to keep that Systolic blood pressure, usually below 130. And um, smoking cessation are all really important.
0: That's right. And then there's the you know renal failure type management stuff. So keeping their fluid and their salt under control so they don't get overloaded. They don't have fluid coming out of their eyeballs. And lastly, dietary requirements. Really for the end stage renal failure guys, the kidney regulates phosphate, regulates potassium. And so you don't want too much in the diet or they won't be able to you know, maintain normal levels of those electrolytes. So I just wanted to quickly run through, there's gonna be a lot of drugs, particularly in this one that you hear about, and then we also referenced them in the first nephrotic syndrome podcast that you know we just kind of brush over, but it's good, especially as a medical student, you don't really know what they are. So I'm gonna quickly run through some of the immunosuppressants used in these diseases and in all autoimmune diseases. So first and foremost, your bread and butter, bread and isolone, or steroids. So that's a dose-dependent immunosuppression. So you can have prednisolone. A gram of methyl prednisolone is really quite significant immunosuppression. Down to your two point five milligrams of oral pred a day, which is almost you no, know, not nothing, but almost nothing. Hmm. And the PRED side effects we won't go through here. Most of you should be familiar with them. Thin skin, overweight, cataracts, osteoporosis, diabetes. Yeah. And, um, and maybe a key point to reinforce is that even though PRED
1: is pretty benign, seems pretty benign, because we see it a lot of the time, if you have a high dose of prednisolone, it hits most of the immune system. It's yes. got lots of mechanisms. So it's actually a
0: very immune- a Shotgun for the immune system. Shotgun, yeah. yeah. So then there's cyclophosphamide. So a word I used to hear all the time and used to just pretend I didn't hear it. I'm like, I'm just going to keep- doing what I was doing before <laughs> I heard that. So tell me about cyclophosphamide. How does it work, Scott?
1: So cyclophosphamide is a pretty strong immunosuppressant. It's an al- it's classed as an alkylating agent and it's usually given as an intravenous dose because that reduces the toxicity and
0: usually every six months. Um, yeah, and it's got a lot of side effects. I mean, so it's, you're using cyclophosphamide if some is really it's dangerous and because mm. it used to be a chemotherapy agent and then it you know was noticed to have this effect on blood cells you know really suppress blood cells and so they used it for immunosuppression and the main side effects i mean in young women the first thing you have to think about is infertility it does cause uh, gonadal atrophy but then it also causes severe cytopenias which is kind of why we're using it a little bit malignancy and then there's this hemorrhagic cystitis so you know this really inflammation of the bladder with bleeding which can also is associated with malignancy of the bladder. So you've got to be careful of those, and you know, be aware of if you're using cyclophosphamide, it means that someone thinks this is a really dangerous disease they've got. So what's next on the list, Scott? So next, rituximab. So you're probably,
1: hopefully, familiar with this by now. It's an anti-CD20 um, monoclonal antibody, which is a, a CD marker found specifically on B cells. And it's used across a lot of different medicine for a number of autoimmune conditions. Um, the main side effects it's got are um, infection, so particularly um,
0: reactivation of TB or hepatitis B, um, PML more rarely. Yeah, yeah, and then you can have infusion reactions. People always get these allergic type rituximab reactions, so you pre-medicate them with sometimes a bit of steroid, a little bit of you know phenergin. Uh, so it's a pretty strong immunosuppressant as well. And if this is if rituximab's going down, there's something something pretty serious going on. Um, one of the other ones you'll hear about is mycophenolate. Mycophenolate is a fairly newish drug. It's an oral, it's a tablet, uh, but there is an intravenous form. Mostly used as a tablet, and it's an inhibitor of this thing called inosine monophosphate. Don't worry about that. But essentially, that's an enzyme in um, in B and T cells, and thus it manages to suppress B and T cells. And it can actually be a pretty strong immunosuppressant, even though it's a tablet. Uh, and so you can use it in all sorts of conditions to immunosuppress someone. So Mycophenolate does have a few side effects which can limit its use. The most common thing is it causes GI upset, so people get you know, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. But more seriously, it's teratogenic. Can't use it in pregnant women, which if you're dealing with a disease like lupus, a lot of your patients might be pregnant women. And in the long term, it has an increased risk of cancer in the skin. And with all of these, infection risk goes up, human suppressing someone. It can also cause suppression of your white cells, red cells, bone marrow suppression. And the last one that I think we commonly hear about is azathioprine. So Scott, why don't you tell us a bit about azathioprine. Yeah, so azathioprine
1: is a purine inhibitor, um, subtype of the yeah, anti-metabolites. And it's found, um, this works in lymphocytes and it affects T and B cell lymphocytes um, as an immunosuppressant. It's less strong than some of the other ones I've already talked about. And some of the significant side effects are GI upset, malignancy, skin cancer, infection, Infections. and hepatotoxicity.
0: Yeah, so yep. I think that's helpful. Maybe it's not. I mean, who am I to judge? But, I, you know, I often didn't know what any of those things were. And so, yeah, it's it's good to get a handle on that. You'll need to listen to it a few times to maybe get your head across it. So general, neph- let's get to the nephritic syndrome. Let's get to the meat of this sweet, sweet, impossible burger. So the general nephritic syndrome, what does it actually consist of? The classic, what you learn in med school.
1: Yeah. So acute kidney injury, hematuria,
0: a bit of proteinuria, so often not too much, and hypertension. That's right, and I think the key thing to remember, and we mentioned this in the other podcast, is actually that a lot of the factors are variable. Some conditions have more of one, less of the other, and even any of the conditions can present with just one of them or totally abnormal, totally in a strange way with just a bit of chronic kidney disease and nothing else. And so these are just rough ideas, but you'll see yeah. why. As opposed to nephrotic syndrome, which is? Uh, so thanks for putting me on the spot here. <laughs> uh, edema. Uh, hypoalbuminemia, hyperlipidemia, and proteinuria, nephrotic range proteinuria, so above three grams. And
1: often with comparatively preserved kidney function, just as a real oversimplification
0: before we dig into the specific conditions. So there's one thing I wanted to mention here as well, again, more relevant to the nephritic syndrome, and that is, you might hear this term, crescentic GN, or rapidly progressive GN. And crescents are uh, a description of what you see under a microphone. Uh, microphone <laughs> under a, <laughs> spitting hot fire on the microphone. Um, what you see under the microscope when you have this person who has rapidly progressive GM something really, it's breaking down everything in the kidney. And what happens is the capillaries tear open. They've got to damage them. And they let basically blood, inflammatory, everything in there. And there's a huge inflammatory response. And then that causes this scarring eventually. And the scars look like crescents across the glomeruli. And so it's called crescentic GN. If you hear that or someone mentions that, something, again, bad is going down. You're probably going towards one of those cyclophosphamide, rituximab type options. So, going to jump in here. So, <laughs> for a re summary
1: nephritic syndrome, hypertension, lots of blood in the urine, maybe a bit of protein um, and acute kidney injury. And nephrotic syndrome, lots of edema, um, lots of protein in the urine, often not much blood and uh, hypercholesterolemia.
0: Yeah, and hypoalbuminemia. Yeah, so again, uh, let's go into some nephritic syndrome cases. So the way this is going to work, we're going to start with a case and you guys can use your detective skills. We'll give you a couple of seconds and then Scott is going to tell, or we're both going to tell you a bit about the case afterwards. Yeah, it's like watching that. Is it Bear
1: in the Big Blue House where you used to do the clue thing? I don't know. I thought that show dropped off by
0: season three, so I stopped watching.
1: Oh yeah, I've, I don't watch it either. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's start with this one. Tran... A 22-year-old... Oh, fuck. Alright, Scott, when you're ready to stop dealing with all the honeys that are messaging you, we can get back to Tran. So, Tran's a 22-year-old commerce student. He comes to the emergency department because he has noticed blood in his urine. And he's complained of chorizal symptoms, runny nose, sore throat, for one day. But other than that, he feels well, normally well. And so you do a deeper dive. You found out that maybe someone in his family or someone he knows had this some variety of kidney disease. And you examine him, and you find that he's got a high blood pressure for a 22-year-old. And his urinalysis shows heavy hematuria, bloodstained hematuria, mm. and mild protein urea. What do we think might be? So what are the relevant features of this uh, of this case here, Scott?
1: Yeah, well, apart from him being a commerce student, he's That's a young quite, quite. <laughs> vital, yeah. young male. He's got a concurrent URTI um, rather than an IRTI in the last few weeks, which is really important as opposed to post-infectious GN. Mm-hmm. Um and he's got a family history of unclear kidney disease. Not, not quite sure what that is. Might be relevant. Might not. Who yeah. knows? Um, and he's also got a nephritic syndrome with the high blood pressure, hematuria, and mild So my top differential here would be IgA nephropathy.
0: That's completely wrong. I don't even know where you got that idea from. Oh, That's damn. I want to delete this whole point. Now, <laughs> bang on the money once <laughs> again, Scott. And he's also Southeast Asian, presumably Tran, unless he's just got very progressive. Australian parents, I don't know. (laughs) So uh, he's uh, Southeast Asian, and it's much more common around the Pacific Rim, um, this IgA nephropathy. So IgA nephropathy, it's a glomerulonephritis characterized by episodic frank hematuria. Now we're talking like the urine turns red, blood red. uh, And yet it's associated with these, as you might have guessed from the name, IgA deposits in the mesangium. And it's really common. uh, One of the more common forms of GN it's mostly sporadic, so there's not actually a huge genetic component. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. They're still working it out. And who gets it, Scott? We kind of had we had Tran here, our twenty two year old mm. male. Is that is so it can affect different age groups. The most common is twenty to thirty year old people, mm. um, often males, and it's much higher incidence in Asia as well. Yeah, Pacific Rim, Asia. Mm. And there's this other condition called Hinoxhonline purpura, for those of you who are pediatrically inclined. I won't say the next bit. I was gonna say PDF. A <laughs> pedophilia inclined.
1: Is it pedagogic? Peder- pedophilia.
0: Pedera- pederastic. Pederastic. Oh, peder- I think it's pederastic. Okay. If you need a technical term. Yeah, okay. next, now it's more appropriate. Joke. Pederastically inclined. <laughs> uh, so, Hinoxion <laughs> line purpura is a similar disease, it, but it occurs in kids and it's got more systemic symptoms and they get more abdominal complaints. So, it's similar. Uh, and the reason it's similar is because iga nephropathy is a disease as the name suggests of iga immunoglobulin a it's one of your antibodies that circulates around it's an antibody that's found where scott so you might remember from
1: immunology you've got your igg and your IgM are in your blood but your iga is the one secreted from your mucosal
0: membranes that's right and so that explains remember tran came in with this chrysal infection and then had hematuria and what's actually going on here is that these people produce abnormal iga which your own body then makes anti-IGA antibodies too, and they bind together and deposit in your glomerulus and trigger off an immune reaction, causing glomerulonephritis. And that's why if you have a viral infection affecting your nose, throat, you start to produce heaps of IGA to fight it, and then you're producing abnormal IGA, and that goes and gets wedged in your glomeruli, and suddenly you have what's called synpharyngitic hematuria, which means whilst you have pharyngitis, infection in your throat, you get blood in your urine, and that's IGA nephropathy. So what's the clinical presentation based on that, Scott? How do these people present? Yeah, so as we talked about, you get a recurrent frank
1: hematuria. so a really heavy hematuria, often during a respiratory infection or within a couple of days. Or sometimes you can also get a persistent microscopic hematuria mm-hmm. as an alternate clinical presentation. So again, these things don't always fit into really nice textbook. That's right, kind of yeah. Classic Classic
0: presentations. And IgA nephropathy is usually a benign disease. They may get hematuria recurrently, but the renal function stays fine. But unfortunately, in about less than a third of people, over 20 years, they will progress to renal failure. And that's particularly likely to happen if they have high blood pressure, protein urea, or if they're old at the time of diagnosis. And so going back to our treatment principle, Scott, what could we treat these people with or what do we treat these people with? So the first priority of treatment is ACE inhibitors for those particularly
1: with protein urea, trying to get the protein level down. Um, some of the other conservative things we talked about, um, controlling their hypertension, non-smoking. Um, diabetes control. Um, and then for those who have persistent progenuria after you've tried those first line measures, then sometimes you use things like steroids and other immunosuppressive agents.
0: Yeah, it's pretty unusual to immunosuppress someone with IgA nephropathy, but if they really look like they're heading down the path towards end stage renal failure, then you can do it. So, sink. if we were going to summarize the things about IgA nephropathy, I'd say the big things in my mind, Scott, and I don't know if you agree, is The frank hematuria that's associated with a respiratory infection, and it's during or one to two days after, not like we're about to talk about something else that's a bit different. So that will be your MCQ for a young guy who has a cold and then gets blood in his urine, and that you know most of them get better. I think those are the two key things about IgA nephropathy. Yep, and it's really easy to remember that you can see the IgA antibodies when you do immunofluorescence on the biopsy. So they probably won't even make that a question because it's a bit too easy. You lock that down. You know, answers in the name. So back to Tran, he gets really passionate about his condition and joins a lot of support groups. And using his commerce degree well, he rises slowly to the top of the Southeast Asian IgA Nephropathy Society. But using his commerce degree a little too well, he starts to embezzle funds and finds himself suddenly flying a private jet across the world where the FBI is ready to meet him on the other side. He's now locked in a Bangkok prison, where he's again used his commerce degree to rise to the top of the prison food chain uh, by dealing cigarettes in a very efficient manner. I love that that, cl- that clinical scenario had no actual <laughs> treatment,
1: <laughs> clinical features. Oh, well, he, he gets better the- from our <laughs> gene property. Yeah, he's doing fine from
0: that point of view. Yeah. And he got ACE inhibitors. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, Mavis, the 73-year-old world crocheting champion, Tells you she's recently been bombing some street crawlers with macrame. Now, that might be a bit of an unusual reference uh, because I I thought macrame graffiti was much more well-known about, but it's not. Scott didn't know it was. But Mavis has lately had a headache and felt generally unwell. She had a skin infection about a month ago, and she thinks it was treated with penicillin. But you're not sure Mavis just possibly calls all antibiotics penicillin. The skin infection's completely healed up. So you do some bloods. See what you can work out. And you find that her creatinine is pretty significantly elevated and her urinalysis shows glomerular, so dysmorphic red blood cells. So what are the key clinical features on this story,
1: Scott? Yep. so it's an older female. She's got a nephritic syndrome with um, uh, elevated creatinine and glomerular hematuria, the dysmorphic red cells on the urine. Um, She's also had a previous skin infection about a month ago. Um, Which is treated now. Which has been treated. So, I'd be thinking
0: about a post streptococcal glomerulonephritis. Funny that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, post strep GN. Now, this is the one that I reckon, at least it was a medical student, I fell for the trick every time. You'd get the story we had with Tran where they'd be like, oh, this person's been unwell and straight away got hematuria. And I go, well, strep is a thing that happens, that's an infection. It's post strep GN. But post strep GN occurs in the children and elderly. And basically, you get a skin or a throat streptococcal infection. And then a few weeks later, you develop a glomerulonephritis, so you know nephritic syndrome with blood in your urine, renal impairment. And that's because there's something on the strep that triggers your immune system, and it takes a while for it to build up to the point where you're now producing antibodies that are binding that part of the strep, landing in your glomerulus, and then causing all this damage, whereas the IgA one happens a lot quicker, so it happens at the same time. Yeah. It's a it's immune complexes, so you're um,
1: type, type three, three hypersensitivity reaction for type those. Type three. You... That was very like kind of cult
0: zombie type repetition. <laughs> post BPT type three. So what's your clinical um, presentation, Scott, if you got a post streptococcal GN? Um post infectious GN. So it's one of the classical
1: nephritic syndromes. So as you mentioned, hematuria, red blood cell with red blood cell casts, you've got um, uh, hypertension and renal failure, but you, which can be progressive and rapid. Yeah. But you can also have features like edema as well. So maybe yeah, so
0: it can be. This is one of the ones that can be really progressive and rapid in some cases. And these guys also get some more systemic symptoms, so headache, malaise, anorexia, abdominal pain, and Mavis had that. Remember. So the diagnosis is mainly based on that story, but some things you might see are a positive, strongly positive rheumatoid factor. So rheumatoid factor is that thing that was traditionally used to diagnose rheumatoid arthritis, but then they kind of realize that it's apparent in a lot of things. And low levels of complement 3, C3, and normal C4. And again, complement levels, C3 and C4, are something you're going to see a lot in these cases. And I wouldn't worry too much about how the complement pathway works, or at least we won't explain that here. But your pattern of C3 and C4 changes can be a helpful clue as to what's going on underneath. And then there's a couple of really specific things for post-strep GM. So anti-streptolysin O titer antibodies, so ASOT antibodies, and anti dnas antibodies. They're not required for the diagnosis, but they help it because they're not positive in everyone. In fact, only thirty percent of people have this anti-streptolysin O titer antibody. But if you see them, they're helpful. So how are you going to treat this, uh, Mavis? This macrame god you do, you've been dealt with well first you're going to get an autograph and all your own macrame works yeah. obviously you can autograph it in macrame <laughs> <Whoa. laughs> <laughs>
1: macrameception um so mainly treatment is supportive so you want to do all those secondary supportive measures we talked about you know control of blood pressure control the proteinuria if necessary uh manage fluid overload um treat the underlying infection and usually there's no need for immunosuppression
0: but yeah, so if you know, if the and usually the strep infection will be a few weeks past, so usually most people would have healed it up, but some people immunosuppressed, whatever. If they already if they still have an obvious strep infection, treat it, probably goes without saying. The prognosis is generally good, particularly in the kids who are affected. But obviously as you get older, you get less reserve, you have hypertension, diabetes, your risk of end-stage adrenal failure is a bit higher. So what are the big things about strep Gn, post-strep Gn, Scott? So post-strep Gn, um,
1: it's the nephritic syndrome, but can also have some edema and progenuria. Um, often in the um, kids or the elderly, it's a few weeks after your um, streptococcal infections. You've got the circulating immune complexes. Um, you diagnose it, you can do, you know, look for evidence of previous infection with the ASOT titer. You really need to do a biopsy because usually treatment's just supportive
0: Yeah. if you get a really classic history. And then hopefully they'll get better, but you don't really even suppress them. So next one we're going to talk about is... So next case, James is a
1: 42-year-old injection drug user, an Aardvark enthusiast, who presents with fevers, sweats, and significant peripheral edema. He has had these symptoms for a few weeks, has been too busy getting his knot on and jamming to some Miles Davis. Got bigger things to do, man. <laughs> <laughs> his urinalysis shows glomerular red cells, and his rheumatoid factor is strongly positive. So what do you think, Raul? What so kind
0: of- injection drug users always make me think about, with fevers, always make me think about endocarditis, mainly because I'm cardiologist, and so that's all I think about. Uh, but he's also got peripheral edema, which might suggest a problem with his tricuspid valve, which is where injection drug users get endocarditis. And he likes Miles Davis, which makes me think, no, he's, um, he's got <laughs> a nephritic syndrome, so he's got glomerular red cells, and he's got this rheumatoid factor that's strongly positive. So I'm thinking subacute bacterial endocarditis. Associated gene associated yeah. GN yes. um, yeah. so GN associated with
1: endocarditis is particularly in those who delay treatment beyond 10 to 14 days and again this is due to deposition of these circulating immune complexes a type 3 hypersensitivity reaction with mm. and
0: also subsequent complement activation mm. so they present clinically role with what so hematuria gross or sort of microscopic and it'll be glomerular hematuria they might get a bit of proteinuria and some AKI but these can be one, another one of those guys to get that crescentic or rapidly progressive GN, so mm. you got to watch out for that, a really um, severe one. And your investigations will usually show signs of chronic inflammation because again, these guys present, you know, after 10 to 14 days. By the time this immune cascade has been triggered, and so they might have normocytic anemia or anemia of chronic disease, as otherwise can be known, um, an elevated ESR and low complement levels because that complement's getting consumed in the immune reaction. And they can have this, as he had, a very high rheumatoid factor titer. Very nonspecific. So
1: um, treatment is you treat, obviously, the underlying infection, which is four to six weeks of antibiotics, usually.
0: Um, And with treatment, chance of recovery is really good. Yeah. So I think the main thing is if you see renal failure or glomerular hematuria in someone with bacterial endocarditis, particularly if they've got risk factors like prosthetic valves or injection drug use, just keep this in mind Mm. um, and you treat the infection. So the next one. Max is a 27-year-old party animal with little regard for the law. At least he has some regard, I guess. That's nice. His only motto is to live fast and die young. He really focuses on the die young, and he's trying to break the record for the most cigarettes smoked in a day. He presents to you unexpectedly, but not unwantedly, with hemoptysis. It's a coughing up blood. And initial blood draws severe AKI. Within a short while in the hospital, he finds himself in the intensive care unit. So what are the really salient things here, Scott?
1: So a 27-year-old guy... Um, he's a party animal, lots of cigarettes. Um, so he's got <laughs> AKI with, um, an, in addition to lung disease. So mm. I'm thinking of some of the other causes, um,
0: potentially um, good pastures, anti-GBM disease. That's right, yeah, yeah. So that's what Max has. So anti-GBM disease is a rare disease caused by antibodies to the glomerular basement membrane in the kidney. And there's also some of those, that same sort of collagen found in the lungs. And so 50% of people who have this disease have lung involvement. And when they have that, it's called good pasture syndrome. And a big risk factor for hemoptysis is smoking. So hence Max is smoking, presenting with hemoptysis. Now this is serious. Someone comes in with anti-GBM disease, it's a 90% mortality if they don't get treated and they rapidly deteriorate like Max did to the ICU. So who's it happening in, Scott? We had this young party animal here, Max. Who else Mm. does it occur in? It's one of these bimodal epidemiological distributions. Bimodal and bi-gender, Isn't that interesting? Mm. Um,
1: So young men in their 20s and women in their 60s or 70s. And the diagnosis really hinges on um, testing for the serum, anti-glomerular basement membrane antibodies, anti-GBM antibodies,
0: and also on a renal biopsy. Yeah, you can also see it those antibodies on a renal biopsy. So treatment is aggressive. It's going to be that stuff we were talking about before, cyclophosphamide, prednisolone, and even plasma exchange, where you take out their blood, you take out the plasma, that's the bit that doesn't have cells in it, and you give them someone else's plasma. And that's to get rid of all those antibodies that are floating around. So it's serious. Now, prognosis-wise, a lot of these guys, will, you know, if they're untreated, will head towards transplant or red-stage renal failure. But if you're gonna transplant someone, you need to wait till you've washed out or settled down all the antibodies and immunosuppressed them. Because you plug in a new kidney and it's just gonna go bonkers in there and tear up that new kidney as well. So yeah, it's a it's a pretty serious condition. So let's move to another one. We have Giorgio, a 73-year-old Italian stamp enthusiast. I thought he was Greek, you know, who presents with <laughs> recurrent blood noses and nasal crusting. He attributes his blood noses to working with a bit too much stamp glue, if you know what I mean. 73-year-old yeah. oh, Italian. What are you yeah. implying? Uh, he loves stamps. It's very cute. <laughs> um, so recently he got a, noticed a dent in his nose and he decided it was time to see someone. So he first went and saw an ENT who did a biopsy of his nose and that showed multiple granulomas. This ENT, being a pretty switched-on surgeon, ordered a urine analysis which showed glomerular hematuria. So what's relevant about this case? yep so older guy um blood noses
1: potentially a saddle nose deformity yeah i um, like that there's <laughs> a dent in his nose saddle nose yeah. deformity so i'm thinking of one of the anchor vasculitities yeah particularly granulomas in his um, yeah, nose yeah maybe Wegener's granulomatosis yeah. with polyangitis yep nailed it nail
0: yeah. in the coffin nail in the head no what's <laughs> oh, the, <give> <laughs> the head on the nail You hit the head of the hit, nail hit the nail on the you hit the head on the of the, the nail in the coffin <laughs> 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 um, so the anchor vasculitis is uh, they affect the small vessels now this is one way of breaking up vasculitis and I think it's kind of important to know is that you can break it up by the size of vessel they affect we won't go into all of them but anchor affects small vessels which means capillaries, venules, arterioles okay? so who gets affected by anchor vasculitis? <laughs> Scott?
1: it's usually um, people 55 to 70 and often men yep Um, This
0: is one of those autoimmune diseases that men are more affected, you know, you don't see that often. How about
1: that? I wonder if it's all the glue. Go males. Um, So the other important tests are um, the serum anchor antibodies. And this is really confusing because they just recently changed the name of the most important ones. So in the past, you might have heard about C anchor and P anchor as subtypes um, based on where you could see these anchor antibodies Mm, um, on immunofluorescence. Um, But the new words are PR3. Or
0: proteinase 3, yeah. Proteinase 3 for GPA. Well, yeah, and that's... that's, So proteinase 3 is the old C-anchor, which it just didn't work out nicely where the P became the P. But so proteinase 3 is C-anchor and And myeloperoxidase or MPO is P-anchor. MPO being most commonly associated with MPA. But there's
1: a great diagram you can get if you use a kind of very reputable source, Google Images, where you can see kind of the overlap between all the antibodies being positive. Yeah. And there's a, it's it's a bit varied. They don't
0: really fit. So there are three main types of anchor associated vasculitis, and that's GPA, so granulomatosis with polyangiitis. And that is associated with destructive sinus disease, like we saw here. So they can get saddle nose deformity, nasal crusting, nasal bleeds, arthritis, and then potentially hemoptysis. It involves the lung, so you can get interstitial lung disease, hemoptysis, it's a problem. It's a problem. Um, And then there's microscopic polyangiitis, similar to GPA, pretty much treated the same, but there's no granulomas on the biopsy, and there's less lung disease and sinusitis, though it can happen. And the last confusing name, just to get you, is um, eosinophilia with
1: eosinophilic granulomatosis polyangiitis. Previously (laughs) known as Churg Strauss, yeah. Uh, so, we moved from a hyphen to a four word combination. Um, and
0: that's also associated with high levels of IgE, and you get this asthma like presentation. And eosinophilia, obviously. Yeah. yeah. So, they'll, they'll present with asthma, wheeze, kind of cough. So, it's a, all of these are porcy immune glomerulonephritis. So, when you look at them under the microscope, there's not that much immune stuff compared to the other ones, immune complexes. And again, go to go back, so PR3 is associated with GPA, and MPO is associated with MPA or Churg Strauss. And I remember that as mpo sounds like mpa but yeah that's pretty good if everyone should find their own way yeah it's a bit difficult treatment these are serious mortality is high without treatment right so they need something they need induction immunosuppression and that's high dose steroids that's cyclophosphamide that's rituximab and that's plasma exchange One, one or a combination of them And then you're going to maintain them on some azathioprine or some low-dose PRED. And you have to keep an eye out for any recurrence of the disease.
1: Yep. So quick summary, anchor-associated vasculitides. You've got the three main types, GPA, MPA, and eGPA, um, associated with some of these antibodies like the PR3 and the MPO. And treatment is, uh, mortality is quite high.
0: So usually they require quite aggressive immunosuppression. There you go. So let's move on to another case lupe is a 27 year old architect student who likes to dabble in swing dancing on the weekend she's lost the hip to the hop to the step lately as her hands and toes have been sore particularly during the morning routines so she gets morning morning hand pain Mm. her autoimmune bloods have shown a strongly positive ANA and double-stranded dna and her urinalysis shows the equivalent of one gram of protein per 24 hours so not quite nephrotic range which is three grams but a bit of protein and some glomerular red cells as well. So what's what's going on? What are the relevant clinical, real quick for us, Scott? Yeah, so, I mean, Clue is probably
1: in the name Lupe, but this, <laughs> this is a young female who's got um, some, a kind of more nephritic sounding syndrome with some glomerular red cells, but also some protein. In addition to some um, early morning stiffness, suggesting a polyarthritis of the small joints, and a strongly positive ANA and double-stranded DNA, the latter of which is pretty specific for lupus. Yep. So i would be thinking lupus of um, nephritis. lupus-associated nephritis.
0: Just as a side note, I had to do room clinics when I was room regging this year, and I found early morning stiffness to be one of the five-year's terms. Anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. that yeah. No worries. So I'm just gonna keep, I'm gonna go back to lupus here for a second, because I feel like you know it's a bit of a tricky disease, particularly as a student. It is a multi-system inflammatory disease, and it's a lot of antibodies detected, you know, um, against your own cells, against your own nucleus. And it mainly affects young females like Lupe. And the, some of the blood stuff you'll see, if someone says someone has a really strongly positive ANA, and particularly if they have a positive DSDNA, and a low complement levels and anti-Smith, anti-Smith antibodies, those all point towards lupus. And there is a specific criteria, but this is some of the stuff you'll see. And about two thirds of people who have lupus will develop kidney disease. And it's really important because if they develop kidney disease, they have three times the mortality risk That's compared to other stunning. people with Kim- lupus. lupus yeah. yeah. So,
1: so lupus is due to deposition, largely due to deposition of immune complexes in the glomeruli. So again, a type three um, hypersensitivity reaction. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I just have to say, when I hear <laughs> you say type say three, it, I yeah. have to say it. I yeah. have to say it. Um, Most commonly, they um, have uh, protein, a bit of proteinuria, but they can have a full blown um, nephritic syndrome. Um, And there's six classes that we'll talk about shortly. So you really need to do a biopsy here because it determines um, both the treatment and prognosis. You can't just use the clinical
0: findings and the creatinine thing and the protein to decide what your treatment is. That's right. So class one and two, so six classes, class one and two, which, you know, there are specific names for, but maybe it's not worth getting into them. But uh, they have minimal renal manifestations. The biopsies look pretty good and their prognosis is good. You don't need to treat them.
1: So class three and four, um, based on the biopsy results, um, have all these proliferative lesions. Um, class four is greater than 50%. And um, they have a much worse prognosis without treatment. So you usually require treatment with
0: aggressive induction therapy. Yeah, aggressive stuff like what we're talking about because that can result in uh, dialysis pretty quickly, loss mm. of your kidneys. Class five is a bit weird. It's membranous. It's more of a nephrotic syndrome. And you sometimes treat them depending on you know, what your clinical situation is. And class six is really when you do the biopsy, you pull out a bit of kidney tissue, put it under the microscope or the microphone, depending on what you're doing, or put it in the microwave, and, <laughs> and you uh, you find that it's all scarred up. And it's probably someone who had three or four and kind of lost their kidneys, and it's all scarred now. So treatment-wise, you know, again, class one and two, and we were hammering this home, class one and two need monitoring because they can go to class three and four, but they don't need treatment at the start. Class three and four need aggressive induction. Now, if you're going to use cyclophosphamide in a lupus patient, what might be something you're thinking about, Scott? Uh, Based on what we said before. Um, you're thinking about fertility? Yeah. Young women, lupus, 27. If she had class 3 or 4, you know cyclophosphamide, you may not be able to have children. So it's really important to counsel people in, and think about that decision. And then you usually follow that induction with a maintenance, mycophenolate, azathioprine, something like that. Prognosis-wise, what happens to people with lupus nephritis, Scott? Um, it's... I mean, I don't know. Depends on what kind of... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. what histological... Exactly. Class 1, 2, they're there. probably going to be okay to yeah. monitor them. But 20% of all lupus nephritis patients, regardless of class, will reach end-stage disease, right? So you need to keep an eye on them. That's why when you're in lupus clinics, they'll get a urine sample every time they come in. And you can only... If you're going to transplant someone who has class 3 or 4, you know, let's say Lupe, a young female, comes in, kidneys are shot... Transplanter, you've got to get the lupus under control first, otherwise, you're going to mess up the new kidneys as well. So, yeah, that's the
1: key. So, a quick summary lupus nephritis one of the more confusing to understand. Remember, lupus is a disease, it's just one manifestation. It's got really poor prognostic factors if you've got this lupus nephritis. The key thing here is um, it's often a it cabbin nephritic syndrome, can also have some proteinuria. But so, you really need to do this biopsy, class it basically, class one and two and six, you usually don't treat. Three, four, usually treat aggressively. And five, you often treat depending on the case. Variable. Um, and about 20% will progress to end-stage kidney disease. So the last one. Scott I'm, Scott insisted on talking about this last disease. So I want to let him take it away. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'm going to show you my uh, very in-depth knowledge of uh, mesangio-proliferative glomerulonephritis, and just to confuse you even more, it's recently been reclassified. But so we won't go very much into this. But just so you're familiar with some of these words, so they don't confuse you off the other histological descriptions that you already know, um, you've got this membrano-proliferative glomerulonephritis. So it's involving both the membranes and um, proliferation of the you know mesangial cells as well. Um, there's two basic types. You've got immune-complex-mediated membranoproliferative glomerulonephritis, nephritis, which is often secondary to infections like hep C, autoimmune things um, like RA or sometimes SLE, just to really confuse you, or even paraproteinemias. And then the other main type is complement-mediated membrano- membranoproliferative glomerulonephritis, nephritis, <laughs> yeah, <can> say it. <laughs> which
0: includes C3 glomerulonephritis nephritis and dense deposit disease. Okay, this is in the weeds. I mean, I think the main thing to know here is that sometimes you get a biopsy and it'll say membranoproliferative or mesangiocapillary glomerulonephritis and it's just the way it looks but it, doesn't, it can be as a result of hep C or SLE or rheumatoid or it can be its own thing. And the treatment depends on what the diagnosis is and what the underlying cause is. Yep, so if it's the immune complex mediated one which is secondary to <laughs> infections or autoimmune disease you
1: got to treat it and uh, e- rolls his face palming <laughs> his face palming and then everyone's favorite expensive drug eculizumab can be used for complement mediated as well as sometimes okay. other things that they trial which is I think largely expert guided and you don't need to know about and
0: that's it that's all of the glomerulonephritis yeah, so it was requested by a lot of people hopefully we've taken <laughs> this monster topic of glomerulonephritis and made it somewhat understandable for you Uh, let us know how you feel about it and keep your eyes out for a potential schedule of podcasts we might be doing in the next 12 months Um, or if it never appears I mean that's a possibility but we're we're, we're working on that we're going to try and do one a month and we're going to try and make some content for you guys as well and write in particularly if you're on Patreon, but you know, whoever write in, tell us uh, if you, there's something you want to see or what you want to, what you want to hear Episode requests are really good. Likes
1: on Facebook and Mm -hmm. sorry about the thunderstorm that's just come in. And if you can just
0: remember to praise me as much as possible on Facebook, I, I live off your praise. Yeah. Uh, I'm like a vampire. Yeah. I'll die without it.
1: (laughs) He's dependent on his kind of baseline narcissism level. Like if it
0: goes too high or too low, he'll die. So he just needs continuous kind of reinforcement. Yeah. Yeah, what's that thing called? The Goldilocks zone. (laughs) All right. See ya.